Alright guys, let's go ahead and start in uh, Matthew 5. We are on the third week of our K-Cup series. We are going to be hitting the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. But we're going to start somewhere different this morning. You know, to understand this parable, we need to understand everything that Jesus has been saying up to it. Um, have, have you guys ever come into a conversation, you caught the tail end of it, and you're like, I don't have any clue what you're talking about. It doesn't make any sense because you weren't there, right? Well, with Jesus, understand that everything that he taught, he was always building on concepts. It's almost, it's almost like he was laying a foundation on your stand. He was laying the first floor, then the second floor. And what happens with, the, with, with this parable is that his ministry has taken its final turn, if you would, okay? He has just now begun his final march to Jerusalem, which we all know that this is now the march to the cross, okay? He is now fully embracing what is about to happen, okay? So what is on his mind is his coming death. And what's, what's hard to watch in this is, is you see the humanity of Jesus begin to grapple with this reality, and it's something that's heavy on him. And so it's almost as if, as his ministry shifts, he gets a, a seriousness about him. He's always been a little bit serious, but it's almost like he's getting focused, all right? And so what we have to understand before we get to that parable is what he was teaching on the way up to it. And so we're going to look at the beginning of his ministry and the foundational teachings that he laid out. Now, who here has heard about the Sermon on the Mount? Hopefully we all have, right? Well, in this, he lays out his foundational understanding. If you would, he lays out the first level of the kingdom he's going to build. This is what my kingdom will look like. Now, before he says this, understand that he, you know, he, he just started his ministry. And when he started his ministry, he started with a bang, okay? Lots of signs and wonders, healings and miracles, all these big things. So now crowds are starting to gather. And if you look at the end of chapter 4, it talks about who's following him now. Because he's been doing signs and wonders, the sick and the lame and the poor and the beggars, these are the people who are flocking to him, okay? Again, it's very important to understand who he's speaking to when he says this. So he has these, these huge crowds of people who are now running to him because they've heard that he has something that they want. And it, it's people who need something. Again, the hurting, the lost. If you notice at the end of chapter 4, he does, it doesn't say that the rich, the religious, the powerful are gathering. These people are not there yet. Does that make sense? These people have heard about Jesus, but he's not important enough for them to be bothered with him. So right now, his main hearers are the ones in, in society and the world that are unimportant. The ones that no one wants, the untouchables. Make sense? Alright, let's read this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he's seeing all these people, the unwanted, the untouchables. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, be, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is one of the first pictures that Jesus begins to give about his reign. Okay, understand everything about Jesus is understanding what kind of a kingdom, what kind of a place he's going to build for them. And again, at this time, they're still thinking earthly. It's going to be a kingdom that has walls and has a capital building and has an army. But the first picture that he gives is as he's surrounded with the ones that no one on this earth wanted, his first message is, what I am bringing is for you. Let that kind of sink in. The first people that Jesus goes to are the ones that no one else wants. Sometimes when I've heard this passage taught, it's taught as if Jesus is kind of telling us what the bar is, if you would, to be received by him. Like, we all have to be humble in spirit, okay? And, you know, to a certain extent, that could be true. But in this point, he's talking to people. He's locking eyes of people. And he's saying those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those you. He's talking to people saying you. You have a place with me. And this is a crucial, crucial piece that we must understand about the kingdom of God. A kingdom of grace, a kingdom where you get in, you get your ticket, not because of anything that you do, okay, but because of who he is. A kingdom where it doesn't matter how famous you are, how hard you worked, how much money you have, how much clout you have, if you're well-known, if you're successful, if you've failed, if you've been righteous, if you've sinned. A kingdom to where the ticket in is because he wants you in. Can only be accomplished when it's not about anything that would allow someone to work their way in. Does that make sense? There's no earning, there's no buying into this world. Um, oh goodness. For Jesus to be the only door, and again, when he teaches all these different things, he talks about he's the gate, he's the door, he's the way. For Jesus to be the only way for us to receive eternal life, he has to be the only one who can decide who gets in. Does that make sense to you? Meaning, it's not about, there is no moral code, there is no... Uh, price of admission that goes outside of him. The only way in is through him. And what's going on with this is, again, he's starting his ministry by proclaiming not just to the people. He's, he's not saying, you are the only ones I, I want. He's saying, this is what my world is like. To where it takes nothing to get in. Except for me inviting you. And the point is this. He's inviting us. And he speaks to everyone who wasn't invited. These are all people who are not invited to the palace. These are people who are not in the temple worshiping. These are people who were outsiders. These people who did not qualify to be in the presence of God by every other standard. But in Jesus they did. This can make a lot more sense when we go to the parable. Now, let's go ahead and step back for a second. Understand that we need to understand the stage, if you would, of this parable. If you guys have your Bibles, flip to, uh, to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going next. Luke chapter 10. I understand that this concept 
is a little bit difficult for us. But Jesus is taking everything that everyone knew about what God wanted, and he's saying, you have it completely backwards. He's saying, you used to, you used to be taught that if you didn't sin, you would enter the kingdom of God. You used to be taught that if you did the right things. You used to be taught that if you prayed enough. You used to be taught that if you made the right sacrifice. You used to be taught that there were all these other roads into the kingdom. And because of that, I'm telling you, no, none of those is real. There's one road now. And it's only through me. Again, hear this. Because we always want to find a way to bypass Jesus. And it sounds so silly and so stupid. But here's the point. We all want control of this. We all want assurance. We all want to know, okay, I went to church. I did the right things. I prayed the right thing. Here's my card. Okay, I'm good. Hey, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. This, this is entrance. This is what it takes. It takes you having to literally come to me. It's going to sink. Okay. If all of his disciples didn't even get this, with all the miracles that they saw and the fact they actually saw him die and then he disappeared and they're still going, what, what's he talking about? It's okay if it takes us a little bit of time to wrestle with it. Make sense? All right, good. Here we go. Okay. It's important to understand that the gospel has a simplistic complexity. That's a fancy way of saying it's very simple and yet it's very complex. Okay? Here we go. Here's why. Because to the... Roman centurion, who knows nothing of the Scriptures, he doesn't know the law, he, he hardly knows who Jesus is, he just knows a part of him. Yet this man has enough faith to make this act of faith and send this guy, you know, and say, hey, can you heal my son? And Jesus says, what? Your faith is healed and blah, blah, blah. For this man who knew nothing about it, Scriptures, or about who Jesus was, about the Torah, about the history of Israel, this man was able to get the simplicity of the Gospel. God is near. But yet, for the Pharisee who's got the complexity, this simple message is always evolving to get him. It, it doesn't matter how many times he wants to try to, to leap over it or to argue it away. It meets him right where it is. The gospel meets you right where you are. And it forces you to drop every other thing that you want to take with you and say, it's Jesus only. Leading up to chapter 10, uh, at the end of chapter 9 in, in, in Luke, there are all these different people who are coming to Jesus to follow him. And again, they're not just following him you know, to, to have a teaching or a teacher. They're following him to have eternal life. And with each person, Jesus demands a different thing. And it seems with Jesus as if the answer to what it takes to get eternal life changes with every person. And, and, and it changes for a reason. And it changes for you for this reason. The cost of eternal life is forsaking everything for him. If you have nothing, it's a very simple equation. Does that make sense? Hear me. If you were in the crowd when Jesus was speaking, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it meant that you didn't have much to lose. Make sense? Okay. I guarantee you that for the person in this room who fears the second coming of Jesus, the person in Africa who's being attacked and having to run for their lives isn't afraid of the second coming. Why? They have nothing to lose in this world. Sure, come on. It's got to be better than this. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, is it making sense? Okay, yeah. 
But for all of us who have things that we think are valuable, all of a sudden that message means something different. The gospel meets you exactly where you are. And the problem with all of us is this. We have so much knowledge, you know, some of us, right? we, we think we have knowledge, but we really don't, okay? We have all this knowledge, and we have all these things, and all the stuff that we care about, and so the gospel for us gets a little bit scary. So, you're saying leave everything for you? Like, could I just, like, give you Sunday? Come on, stay with me. Could I just give you Sunday? Could I just, like, pray a little bit? Could I just, like, have my life, and then, like, kind of carve you out a day of the week? Can I just like obey you and you know like when I want to and just kind of you know would that work? It's hard for us because we have things we don't want to lose. Come on, stay with me. We're getting there. And so when Jesus goes to those who had nothing to lose, they're like, "Yeah, let's do it. That kingdom sounds great." And then to everyone who thinks that this world has value, for all of us who think this is what we really want, we go, "Oh, yeah." I, I'm not sure if I like his exegesis. Okay, come on. Stay with me. All right, here we go. On to the parable. So, here in in chapter 9, I want to show you guys a very important passage here. Chapter 9, verse 51. And it said, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Again, it's that thing I'm telling you. His life has been building to this, but this is the final turn. He is now heading to his death. Things are getting very serious, okay? And so the next thing that happens is he sends his disciples to Samaria. And he says, all right, you know, I want to visit them. I want to bring this good news to them. And when they get there, they are rejected. The Samarians say, no, we don't want Jesus to come here. Now you have to understand the background here, okay? You have to understand that the Samarians are Samaritans, apologies, are not exactly seen as good people. Okay, understand that there is a lot of ethnic hate between the two groups. Okay, the closest thing that we have is the Middle East. Apparently people over there just really have problems with each other. Okay, so it goes back to when Israel was split in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, which is where the Samaritans come from, they began to have to marry outside of the tribe. They begin to marry all the other people who had other idols. So they're called mixed bloods. Think about that. Sounds like Harry Potter, right? You guys? Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Anyway, okay, mixed bloods. Okay, we're going to move on. Mixed bloods, all right? And so again, there is some hatred here. Okay, there is exclusion here, okay? Hey, see what they did? They're on the outside of what you're doing, Jesus. And beyond that, they have a separate place to worship. They said, we don't need Jerusalem. We have our own mountain, our own holy hill that we worship on. So again, to us, it doesn't mean anything. To them, it's kind of a big deal. Okay, it's almost like the way that we see the Catholic Church. Like, oh, it's so stupid. Oh, you know, and again, but to them, it's not stupid. Anyways, is it making sense? They don't like each other, okay? And on top of that, the Samaritans, they, they cooperated with the Romans. They were seen as traitors to Israel. They helped and allowed the Romans to have their, their bases with their soldiers in Samaria. Are you getting this? The closest example to you of someone that you would think is not part of what Jesus is doing is a terrorist. That's the closest example for you right now. Think about it. Everyone goes silent. 
So the terrorists decide that they don't want to receive Jesus' message. So what do you think the response of his disciples are in all their wisdom? So can we call down fire on them then? Wouldn't that be your response? Well, hey, they denied you, Lord. Bring down the rain. I mean, come on now. That's what they did. Stay with me. This is, they're humans, and they're not too bright. It's awesome. Okay. So again, they asked to call down fire. Jesus says, no, that's dumb. And he sends them out. He sends out the 72. So now we're on to chapter 10. He sends out the 72 with the message of the gospel, and they all go out and do these crazy awesome things. They're doing signs and wonders, and they come back and tell Jesus, hey, look at all the things that we were able to do in your name. We cast out demons. We healed people. All this kind of great stuff. And what is the response of Jesus? Chapter 10, verse... Oh, boy. 20. Chapter 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. And again, like to, to all of us, whenever we read this thing, we're going, who's Jesus talking to? I mean, I mean, again, think about it. You're having a conversation. They go, hey, Jesus, we just cast out demons. He goes, and then he just starts like talking to, to God. You know, I just, I'm so glad that you confuse everyone and, and that there's no one who understands what you're doing. You know, but, you know, it's only kids who understand it, Okay. And understand, when he's making these references to, to children, again, he's, he's, he's making references to the lowly of the world. The only people who get what God is doing are the ones who have nothing to lose in this world. They're the ones that get it. Remember, he's been teaching this. The last, the least, the lowly, the unwanted, the poor. These are the ones who get it. He wasn't saying these are the only ones invited. He's saying these are the ones who get it. They're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. And by the way, the meek inheriting the earth, why would they inherit an earth that he was going to destroy? We'll talk about eschatology of the day, right? Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Come on, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Why would he give them a gift? Hey, you're doing great. I'm going to give you this, and then I'm going to blow you up. Doesn't make any sense. Okay, it's a good thing. All right. So he's saying these are the people who are going to inherit what I'm coming to bring, the ones who have nothing to lose here. Here's the point. You don't have to sell your possessions. You don't have to, you know, to get poor to get it. But you have to realize that you are poor to get it. Did that hit you yet? You have to realize that you are lowly. That you have nothing to lose. That as much as you believe you have in this world, it is nothing outside of God. We all enter the kingdom the same way. Lowly, last, weak, and ultimately dead. Everyone goes, what are you talking about? We all have to embrace this process with Jesus. To come through Jesus means to embrace what he brings. And he brings death to this world and life in his world. Come on now, that is good stuff. Do you want to know what it means to inherit eternal life? Are you willing to lose everything to gain what he has for you? That's what it is. If not, I'd spend some time soul searching. I'm excited about it. I don't know about you. Lord, show us. We have nothing to lose. There's nothing that this world has that we need. Nothing. And the only things in this world that we have of value are from you anyway. 
Just think about it. What things in your life really matter? I guarantee those things have faces. Father, I ask that you would reveal to us there's nothing in this world that is worth holding on to. Let's go ahead and get to the parable, guys. So here's the thing, okay? He's getting serious now. He's getting, he's getting very focused. He's, he's a little bit heavy. And so now he gets this question asked. He's been asked before. And uh, verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. Here we go. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which, by the way, is a pretty important question. Verse 26. What is written in, in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now, pause for a second. This is very different than the way he answers it in the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, he answers it for him. He summarized the Gospels, and he says, well, the law. And he says it means, you know, to inherit eternal life is to love the Lord with all that's in you and to love your neighbor. But in this instance, he actually makes the other guy answer it. So he does answer it. Uh, verse 27, he goes through the thing, and he, you know, means to love the Lord with all your heart. And your neighbor, verse 28, verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So, so it's almost like Jesus is like, okay, there you go, you got your answer. He's about to walk away. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. See, he just got bested, all right? And if you guys know anyone who's intelligent, anyone who's got a little bit of pride, we don't like being humiliated. If you have a pride issue, raise your hand, okay? We don't like being embarrassed, okay? So we're going to get that guy. Okay, well, then who's my neighbor? <laughs> this is what he says. He comes back to Jesus and he says, okay, so who is my neighbor then? All right? And verse 30, here's the parable starts. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But when a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, We've all heard the story, but I need you to understand this. Think about all the building that's going on. Think about the context. Think about the question. The, the question being asked isn't just about the neighbor. It's how do I inherit eternal life? This is the context of the discussion. And so in this, if to inherit eternal life, it means to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor, then this parable means more than just being nice to people. Does that make sense to you? Okay, it's more than just being nice, all right? So... Now that you've got that, let's go ahead and break this thing down. First thing, we see the traveler, right? Notice that there's not many details about the traveler. He does that on purpose, okay? The traveler is you. It's you, it's me, it's anyone. That, that's the point. The, the, the point of the traveler is that it's anyone and everyone. This is all of us. We are all going through the same journey, if you would. And see what happens to the person. Next thing we see is the assault. Now, the assault takes place in verses, 
Uh, let me pull it up. Let me pull up my... The assault takes place here, verse 30, 30. And here's what it says. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him. They left, and they left him half dead. Now, I want to break down how he's attacked because I, I believe it's important. Understand, the traveler is symbolic of anyone and everyone. The first thing that took place in the assault is this. They robbed him, meaning the traveler lost what was of value to him in this world. Secondly, they stripped him. To, be, to have your clothes removed is, is, is not physically hurting you, right? But it is, you lose your dignity. Does that make sense? There's a, a loss of pride, of self-worth, of, of, of you know, identity. And so when they stripped him of his clothes, he experienced shame. The next thing, they beat him. Understand that he experienced pain. And then they left him. What I just described is every major source of pain and loss that we experience on this earth. We lose the things that are valuable to us. We lose identity. We experience shame and guilt and condemnation. We experience pain. Emotional, physical. And the one that we all experience, abandonment. To be lonely. Think about this again. The traveler is you. This is what we go through in this broken world. There's not one person who cannot identify with at least one of those areas of pain and loss and suffering. This is you. The next people we see, we see the Levite and and we see the priest. These are both Old Testament examples of people who are in right covenant with God. Meaning, as far as everyone around knows, these people are doing what God wants them to do. Okay? These are people who are righteous. Okay? And again, he chooses these figures for a reason. And with these two people, it challenges us in this because, again, if these two men pass by, that means they had a reason for passing by. And I really want to attack this, if you can stay with me. The reason that these men pass by is because they had something more important to do. Hear me. They were taking, you know, alms gifts to the temple. They were late for prayer, if you would, okay? You know, you know late for the prayer meeting, late for church. They are going to offer sin and sacrifice. I mean, they're doing God's bidding. They've got more important stuff to do. And so they just walk by. Come on, stay with me. Here's the next people that we see. We see the Samaritan. Understand again, we see the ultimate picture of the villain in our lives. What I love about this this parable is that Jesus takes our natural reaction and flips it. Meaning this, when you read a story, do you automatically put yourself in the character of the villain? When you read this, were you the robbers? No, you're not, right? When you read a story, you put yourself in the hero's shoes. But he makes the hero someone that you would never want to be. Think about that. He makes a Muslim walking down the road, you know, with his, with his shawl on. 
It makes it the guy that you think is the villain. And he says, are you sure that you're in those shoes? And you say, no, I'm not in those shoes. That's what we do. Come on, say with me. He's getting us. I love it because he always gets you. I mean, he just knows how you're going to react. Oh, so you think you're the hero, right? Well, the hero happens to be a member of ISIS. Are, are, Are you still the hero? Everyone's silent. Are you sure that's what it says? Understand that to a Jew hearing the story, this is outrageous. And so automatically it causes the Jew to go, no, I'm not that person. So if they're not that person, who are they? The robber or the passerby? Or even better, the traveler. So what does this guy do? What does this hero do? What does the Samaritan do? There are one, two, three, six different things that he does, okay? Here's the first thing he does to him, okay? The first thing is, the scriptures note, that he saw the man, okay? Understand that this is crucial because it also noted that the Levite and the priest saw the meaning it wasn't an accident. Does that make sense? It was on purpose. All three of these people, okay, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan saw this man bleeding naked. Again, think about it. You're walking on the road, bleeding and naked near death, okay? And all three people saw him. But what happened next is different with the Samaritan. The second thing is this. He saw him, but then he had compassion on him. And his compassion led him to do the next thing. He went to him. Now, to you, reading a story, you're not really, you know, for us, it's kind of, you know, it's a fairy tale, it's a story, whatever. Think about this. Every one of them had something to do. You don't just go walking from Jerusalem to Jericho for no reason, okay? It's a long trek, and it's steep. Here's Jerusalem, here's Jericho. You're going, and you come back, you're going, think about that. It's a terrible road. You don't want to go on it. There's robbers. Okay, again, there's people out there. You don't want to stop. Each person on the road had reasons to not be inconvenienced. Okay, they had important things to do. This is probably the most important note that we have, uh, you know, with him. He didn't just have compassion and walked by. He had compassion and interrupted his life and went to him. Who else had compassion and didn't just have compassion from a distance, but came to us? Come on. Jesus, the J word. Everyone's like, everyone's like I don't know. Who was it? Jesus, right? Oh, God, goodness. It's one thing to be like, oh, I feel so bad for you, sweetie. You know, and you just walk on. You're like, you'll be okay. Jesus, be blessed. You know, I mean, come on. Okay. Again, it's one thing just, you know, from a distance, which obviously most of us know, you know, it's not really compassion anyway, right? But to be moved by compassion, he enters into his world. He steps into exactly, I mean, again, how clean could that have been? A guy who's about to die, stripped naked, by the way. I'm not very comfortable with this situation. Think, come on, think about it. I'm not very comfortable, you know, with a grown man naked and bleeding everywhere. I'd be like, 911, we've got someone who needs help. You know? Come on, be blessed and healed. <laughs> Jesus, come on. That's funny. Come on, all right. Again, I mean, like you're seeing the guy, you're like, oh, I have compassion, but this is awkward. I don't want to do this. But he comes to him. He goes and, he, oh, that's powerful. The next thing. He bandages him. Can you just picture this? 
having to get down in the dirt, in the blood, in the yuck, and having to just slowly begin to bandage someone, again, who is near death. I mean, picture this. This is not a very pretty fairy tale, okay? This is, this is a picture of what Jesus did for us and what Jesus is doing, what? Telling us to do. If you want eternal life, love your neighbor. Hey, neighbor, love you. No. <laughs> get down in there with them, you know? Get there. Embrace them and get in all that. Come on, guys. This makes me uncomfortable. I don't even want to, like, picture bandaging a grown man who's naked and bleeding. I'm like, here's the blanket, you know. I'll pray for you. Come on, guys. Okay. I guess I'm the only one like that. You guys are all comfortable in the situation. All right. You're all a bunch of nurses and doctors. Okay. I'm not. Spiritual doctor, hopefully. All right. Okay. Anyway. Now, the next thing he does is he takes and he begins to, to, to make a public gesture of this man's value. He, he, he not only puts bandages, but he uses oil and wine. And again, I, you know, I don't have to go into it great depth. These are rare things. These are things that have great value, things that cost a lot of money, okay? And, you know, for this guy, we don't know what he does for a living, but we know that for the average person, it's almost a year's wages worth of worth what he's doing. Between the, the lodging and the wine and the oil, he's giving a lot for this man. The next thing he does is he, get, he gives this man a place, he goes and gets him a room. He, he gives him a place, meaning here's a guy left for dead on the side of the room. Here, here's a room for you. Here's safety for you. Here's a place to rest. I will meet your needs here. Just lay down. Does this sound like anyone else to you? There we go. We got a school ministry paid off. There we go. Jesus, that's always the answer. This parable should mess with you. If it doesn't, you're not reading it right. Again, what's the question? How do you inherit eternal life? What's Jesus' answer? To get baptized. No? Now again, that has great value and it's taught. But was that the answer of Jesus? No. Find those who are hurting. See everyone as your neighbor. Stop. Care for them. Get uncomfortable and sacrifice for them. Jesus began his ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah. And it was a prophecy about the year of Jubilee. And he gets up there and he talks about it. And he starts the ministry by saying, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do this. And what this is, is what you just see in this parable. To come and to meet every need, to come and to bring hope, to bring light, to get into your nasty, filthy world, and to bring you out of it. So here's the question. How do we respond to this parable? What do we do with this? Here's the first thing that we all have to do. We all have to take a second look. We all have to... What I love about Jesus is he just... He constantly tests us in the best way possible. So loving and so gentle, but saying, you don't have it yet. You don't get it yet. We have to constantly take a second look at ourselves and at those around us and say, okay, am I following in the footsteps of Jesus? Does your life look like Jesus? Now, I really want to challenge you with this. It is hard for us to 
take this beyond Sunday morning. I, I understand that, okay? I'm, I'm not naive to think that these words, these words are so gold and powerful. You're just going to walk out of here, you know, floating on air, okay? I get it. But here's the thing. The context is eternal life. Do you want to live? Yes! <laughs> the answer is yes. Do you want what God has for you? Kind of. I have had, you know, some, some areas where, you know, I've had to truly trust the Lord lately. And it has brought me to a place where I am so convinced of how thin the, how thin the separation is between us and the Lord and between us and, and honestly, eternity. This is not just a lesson or a story. This is literally the heart of God for us. Are we willing to lay everything aside to receive what he has for us? I'm telling you this morning, it isn't just church, okay? One of the biggest things that, that happens in this parable is that this man couldn't go on with his everyday life. There's no way that a Levite could have stopped on the road and given a full day's time to this man and still kept up with his religious stuff. There's no way this guy could have pleased the God he was serving and still stop with this man. The point is this. He was serving the wrong God. Most of us in this room are these priests. What's scary about this parable is that we can put ourselves in every one of the characters, and that's why it's so scary. We've all been beaten and bruised, and we've all passed people by. That's all of us. And the point is, the next step in the process is to be the person who's there to care for them. Because we've all been the robbers too, by the way. This parable stinks. It's like, oh, I'm not the robber. Yes, you are. I'm not the Yes, I am. Again, what challenges us is this. The Samaritan understood he could not have his life and then care for this man. His, his life, he had to be about caring for the man, about this kind of life first, and everything else attached on to it. Again, the question is, what does it mean to have eternal life? And the first answer is to love the Lord with everything, meaning you are about Him first. The hardest thing for us to unlearn is this idea that we can attach God to your life. My wallet is a mess. I've got cards and all sorts of stuff, right? And, and you know, I found that out because I lost it this week. Anyways, um, it is found. God is not like a card we can just, oh, here we go, here's room. Okay, we're good. The scariest part of this parable that needs to hit you this morning is that the only man who pleased God, the only man who was seen as the child of God, the end of the story, is the man whose life was God, and then he had other things that he did. Every other person, the reason that they didn't stop, the reason they, that they did not please God, the reason that they were not children of God is because they were in this world and then tried to add on the other. There's no time. There's no room. You cannot do this life and then... Oh yeah, the kingdom of heaven. Everyone goes, man, this should have come next week. Like Pastor Larry a lot more. He's more loving, right? I heard he was very loving last week. He was preparing you for today, right? It's okay, everybody. Just God loves you. 
ushers, you guys can bring up the, the table. and We're going to take communion for this reason, okay? Because communion is this constant picture. And it, it's a beautiful picture that goes directly with what we're talking about this morning. Again, guys, I just, I cannot say any clearer. We cannot have this world and then find a way to fit in Jesus. Do you want eternal life? Yes. Then what does it take? It takes pushing everything aside for God first and then finding out what else we can plug in on the side. He's the one who sent you into this world. He knows you have to have a job and bills. He knows you have kids. He's he's the one who gave them to you. But it starts in the heart first. If we could all stand and just kind of get ready for communion.